Hey there, this is Sean McMahon. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast and thanks for supporting the ministry by lending your ears, your minds, hearts, all that good stuff. Don't be afraid to share this here message with a friend or a family member, even a stranger. Have at. It's not like it's going to bite. These messages are recorded live at the Community Baptist Church of Gayhead and Aquina on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and the good old U.S. of A. If you're ever in town for a visit or suddenly find yourself shipwrecked on the southwest side of our lovely little island, climb up the clay cliffs and come on down to our little old chapel for our weekly 10 a.m. service. No need to wear anything special, just bring your special self. May God bless you. Second Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, encourage, and with every form of patient instruction. For the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine. But with itching ears, they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. So they will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Be you, but but you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill the new ministry. Glory to the Lord. Glory to the Lord. The time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine. All right. All right. All right. You can take a seat, but so this this scripture from Timothy is is often given to young ministers like myself, kind of as as your first charge. Say, make sure you you know prepared in season and out of season to preach the word, Um, and. That's who it's addressed to, too. Paul is writing to, to a, new, um, a new minister, a new elder. Um, but what I want to talk about is how this, this doesn't just apply to ministers. This applies to everyone. This applies to you, 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 you. It applies to everyone. You. Okay? And you. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't point to you. But it applies to you, too. All you out in TV land. So... We're going to start with a story, two stories about two different men, okay? Joel Osteen and Oliver Plunkett. Have you heard of Joel Osteen? Yes. Yep. You heard of Oliver Plunkett? Nope. That's what I thought. So, (laughs) Joel Osteen is the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, where Melissa's from. Uh, And his father founded the church years ago. But Joel grew up wanting to be in the television business. Big surprise. But he was actually a behind-the-scenes type of dude, and he was kind of more about like the lights, the camera, the action. He was a production manager. And he helped his father televise his services, and he also started some other networks locally in the area, kind of like MVTV. And that was kind of his thing. Uh, and one day, his father got ill, went to the hospital and he asked Joel to take over and he did that reluctantly but he did it obediently 
Um, and that turned out to be not just his first time preaching, but it turned out to be the beginning of his entire preaching career because that week his father passed away. And so Joel suddenly became the full-time permanent pastor of Lakewood Church. Has anyone ever been to Lakewood Church? Right, none of us have been there, but we've, we've heard of Joel Osteen, which is crazy. He's a very famous guy, right? I think he's the most popular preacher in the world right now. And when I lived in New York City, I didn't know who he was really, but I saw his face all the time, like his big smiling face, always smiling uh, on the advertisements in the subway cars, like everywhere for years. That's, that is not cheap to have a, a, a uh, promotional campaign that widespread and for that long. He's, he's in charge of a media empire. Millions of people watch him. Millions of people listen to him and his wife's messages. Um, millions of people buy his books. And that means his family makes millions and millions of dollars. They say he's worth about $100 million. Which means he could probably buy like half an acre on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> so he's not doing too bad. And, you know, he preaches an uplifting and an inspiring message. And millions of Christians say... It helps them in their walk of faith. And there are lots of people who aren't Christian who tune in anyway, and he's preaching Jesus, so he's doing good. That's Joel Osteen. So Oliver Plunkett, who none of you have heard of before. But I have. There's this funny family legend um, that I grew up with. My Granny Joan, who's from Ireland, this is my father's mother, she always wanted one of her grandkids to be named after Oliver Plunkett. Oliver Plunkett McMahon. It's kind of a ridiculous name. I always think of that game, Kerplunk. You pull out the sticks, I think, and the marbles come down. Oliver Plunkett McMahon. She would have even settled for a middle name, so I could have been Sean Plunkett McMahon. Uh, but it never happened because the name kind of seemed ridiculous. Plunkett. Now, my, my Granny Joan is, is a very devout follower of Jesus. She's Irish Catholic and is die hard, prays all the time. I've never seen anything like it. So why was Oliver Plunkett so important to her? So I met Oliver Plunkett once and it was about when I was five years old uh, we were visiting my, fa my father's homeland Ireland and we were in uh, County Louth and one town over from his hometown of R.D. in Drogheda uh, we visited St. Peter's Church. And uh, my father took me over to an area with, with all these graves marked in the floor where people were buried underneath, and there were some above-ground um, tombs, and there was this little glass case, and it had this really old skull in it. And my dad said, meet Oliver Plunkett. So <laughs> Oliver Plunkett um, was an Irish saint, from the 17th century. And he's a distant relative on my granny's side. He's, he's my father's, mother's, distant ancestor's brother. Something like that, right? And we're all cousins if you're Irish anyway, so who knows. But we're related is what I hear. Um, so Oliver Plunkett was ordained a priest just in time for the conquest of Ireland by Oliver Cromwell, if you know your history. And that means that Catholics were outlawed and all the Catholic priests would be executed. 
So Father Oliver Plunkett uh, escaped. Actually, he didn't have to escape Ireland. He was, he was studying in Rome, so he just stayed in Rome. He stayed there for a little while and kind of waited it out and waited for some of the restrictions to loosen up in Ireland. And once it seemed like the, the coast was clear, he petitioned to move back to Ireland, and he started the first integrated Christian college, Protestants and Catholics in the same college. But as we all know, politics are pretty fickle. So another wave of persecutions came while, while Oliver Plunkett was working in Ireland, and the English passed something called the Test Act, and that meant that anyone holding any sort of office, including in colleges, would be screened for treasonous ideology. And at that time, kind of written between the lines, was Catholic equals treasonous. And we'll get into the why. But Oliver Plunkett would not consent to taking these religious tests. He cited his Christian faith. He cited the doctrines of, of uh, Catholic doctrine and common law, common English law. So because he wouldn't take this test, he wasn't considered safe as a professor, as a teacher, so his college was closed, his assets were frozen, and in modern parlance we call that he was canceled, right? He just disappeared. Uh, he went into hiding, and he refused to stop his ministry. He kept doing his ministry. He would hold mass in the caves in the countryside, and, and that's kind of the, the famous image of Oliver Plunkett, famous only in Ireland, in County Louth. I don't think anyone else knows him. Um, and he tended to the sick and dying, and he administered last rites and funerals. As you know, that's extremely important to Catholics and Catholic culture, because you might not even be you know, Christian, but you can get your last rites and get baptized right then and there, and then you're good to go. So it was really important in that culture, and he did all that work. And he did it so much that eventually he was caught. So this is what's kind of crazy about it. Because he was a Catholic, he was accused of being involved in this treasonous plot to violently overthrow the English crown with the help of the French. Which is crazy because he'd never had any contact with French people. He'd never had any contact with the French. But at that time, there was this rumor going around that the Pope was plotting with the French to overthrow England and was using Irish Catholics as like secret agents. So this is why all of these, these Irish people were subject to this test act. They were being screened for Catholic Christian faith. So it was like the 17th century of, uh, version of the McCarthy hearings or kind of what they did in the National Guard just this past two weeks ago, like screening soldiers to make sure that they like, weren't going to do anything crazy to the president, right? So, in the eyes of this tribunal that tried Oliver Plunkett, which we might call a kangaroo court, it didn't seem like he really had any um, chance to testify or anything like that, uh, his faith alone was enough, was enough to condemn him by association. So he was convicted of treason, and he was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Uh, yeah, you all seen Braveheart? What happens to William Wallace at the end of Braveheart is what happened to my ancestor, Oliver Plunkett. He was martyred 
on July 1st, 1681, at the age of 56 years old. And that's the story of Oliver Plunkett. So who would you rather be? Joel Osteen or Oliver Plunkett? So I was thinking about these stories, and I was thinking, you know, maybe these two men aren't too different from one another. They both preach the gospel. They seem pretty faithful. That's God's to judge, but me, you know, sure. They basically had the same job. But the season that God put them in was pretty different. Oliver Plunkett was ministering in a season of persecution. Uh, Joel Osteen is ministering in a season of tolerance and even abundance for the church in America. But maybe, maybe if they trade places, they'd have different fates. Maybe Oliver Plunkett would be a rich Texas pastor, and Joel Osteen would have been a, uh, a Irish martyr. Who knows? So I was talking to a friend this week about the, the, the persecution of the church. And we were talking about how we have these restrictions put on our churches since the lockdown. You know, 10%, 50%. Some states you can't meet at all. And I was saying that just because the chapels and the cathedrals and the sanctuaries aren't full, it doesn't mean that the church isn't gathering. We, we have all these options. We have Zoom, right? Um, and there's also like little house church pods that, that will fit certain regulations. We're still fulfilling the Great Commission to preach the good news and to, to, to be ministers of Christ. So my friend and I were reflecting that the current state of the church is, is it's kind of like decaf coffee. You know, it's, it might not have the same kick, but it's still coffee. We're still able to do this, basically. Um, we're definitely in a season of restriction. Um, but regardless of the season, it doesn't mean that our mission changes. So here at our church, we're doing everything we can to meet the needs of everyone who wants to come here and everyone who can't necessarily be here, right? Uh, it's not ideal, but it's not awful. So on the face, it's not exactly persecution. But we've talked other Sundays about Christian persecution in other places, like where it's really acute in Africa and Asia. And, and today, the church there, in those places, is, uh, is under a season exactly like the season that martyred Oliver Plunkett. It's yielding martyrs, probably as we speak right now. So we might be in a season of restriction, but not in a season of persecution that compares to theirs, right? So where does that put us? That's, that's always our job. We have to think about what season we're in, what we do. Our universal church is experiencing one season in one place, but a different season in another. So first of all, as always, our path is love. That's the simple answer. And, and the questions that follow are, how do we love our neighbor? How do we help? That's always the question. That's always the question you ask yourself, in season and out of season. Love, how do we do it? So we continue our mission, our great commission, to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and encourage with every form of patient instruction. And I remind you, this is for all of us, not just for new ministers, right? 
to preach, and even to reprove and to rebuke and to encourage. And, and not just do all those things for one another in the church, but to everyone in the world. And these are very important and timely words because what my discernment tells me is we're not exactly out of season here right now, but we're definitely not exactly in season either. Last week, Mr. Mike gave a great sermon, and in that sermon he admonished everyone. He reproved, he rebuked, right? He, he admonished everyone to examine your political beliefs in the light of the gospel. And so you should. You've got to ask yourself, do you hold political beliefs that are contrary to the commandments of Jesus Christ? Because you can't do that, can't serve two masters, right? Are you giving a life that gives an aroma of the good news of truth and grace? Or a funny smell of, of not-so-good news, fake news even, right? Or, or empty conceits, vanities, right? What are we spreading around? What, what spirit are we putting out? What are we talking about? What are we giving to people? As I mentioned earlier, um, there are people and always will be people who, who want to put us through these types of tests, like the test act, you know, that happened during the McCarthy hearings, it happened to the National Guard the other day. And it's, it's usually for altruistic reasons. They want to secure their power so they can protect us. And we're going to do that in our families even. And they'll ask you this question, what do you believe? And is it a threat? And I think we need to think about that right now in this country. Because what are you going to do when someone asks you, well, maybe this has already happened, uh, hey, I hear you're a Christian. I hear that Christians are white nationalists. Does that mean that's what you are? Or, well, you're not white, but you're Christian. I hear that Christians are Christian nationalists. That's what I heard, and I heard that at the Capitol there were Christian nationalists. You go to church, where exactly do you sit with that? Someone asked me that recently. Um, some of my oldest friends are saying this stuff on social media. They're, they're saying Christianity equals extremism. Um, if you're Christian, you're, you're part of the problem. You, you condoned what happened at the Capitol just by being a Christian. I'm seeing that right now. Maybe you're part of the problem, so let's, let's test you out, right? Test act logic. And I'm totally stretching that idea to the extreme, you know, um, pitting it against history. It doesn't necessarily have to go that far. We, not, we might not get tested by the government. You know, that stuff doesn't necessarily have to happen. But in little ways, you may have already been in that position, or you might be soon. Um, when I first became a Christian in my 20s, this was 10 years ago, before any of this capital stuff happened, a lot of my peers disapproved. They, they told me, like, you can do what you want. I'm sure you have your own reasons for being Christian. But as far as I know, Christianity is a white supremacist cult. Or it's, it's based on, on a fraudulent myth. And it hates women. And it condoned chattel slavery. And, and it perpetuates racism and hatred. And it's a cult that controls the, the government, you know? And they're like, where do you stand with this? I've had all that projected onto me. Um, how can you be a Christian if being a Christian means X, Y, and Z? 
And I've always had the same answer. And it's kind of pathetic in some ways, but it's the best answer in my opinion. And the answer is, I'm a Christian because I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ alone can save me. That's it. You don't try to defend Christians or even defend Christianity. You just preach Christ. You do what Paul did. He said, he said I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. And my logic is, can I excuse the sins of Christians myself? Can I do that? Not at all. Um, but that, does that mean that I, I should pay for the sins of all Christians? Can I? How can I? How can I do that? I don't know what I would do. So far as I know, Jesus and only Jesus can pay for the sins of Christians, has paid for those sins, and, and paid for the sins of everyone else. That's my faith. To everyone else, it's going to be nuts. I live in a different world where, where sins are truly forgiven. And that's the best I got. That's what it means to know nothing except Christ crucified. No one else can deal with sin but Christ alone. All right? The sins of Christians throughout history are many. And so are my own. The Bible is super clear that it's from my sins and my sins alone that I stand condemned. And it's the same for you, right? It's the same for everybody. We all stand condemned for our own sins. There's no one righteous, not one. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who will save me but Jesus? Who will save you but Jesus? Who will save any of us? He died for our sins and raised us to eternal life. We just live in a different world, so to speak. And that's what our faith is about. This is how we answer. And, and, and this is what we confess when we are questioned. Right? The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say when you are brought before the courts. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. And, and we need to be ready for this in season and out of season. That's what the scripture of Timothy is about. We want to be strong in our knowledge of scripture. And that in its way, is sufficient. You don't need to rely on man-made interpretations. You don't need to rely on philosophies or ideologies in preaching and defending your faith. That can get complicated and misleading, right? Answering, answering these charges about politics, etc., trying to answer it on its own terms. You're just getting into this worldly stuff. And you don't, frankly, live in that world. You live in this world of forgiveness of sins, and it's kind of nuts. I have to emphasize that. It's a different paradigm. And this is why the Bible always says, keep it simple. Keep it direct. Be a fool for Christ. Be a fool. The Bible says God is pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. So our preaching doesn't need to be grandiose, melodramatic, wordy, self-righteous, or, God forbid, complicated. You want to keep it simple. You want to be humble like Paul, right? So when we say preaching, it just means sharing good news, sharing the love of God. Paul said, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message and my preaching weren't with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power 
so that your faith wouldn't rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And that, that's, that's relevant for us today in our season, whether we're in or out of season. I think we're in between. Our mission is to be disciples of Christ, and, and Christ alone. Christ alone. Mr. Mike was right. If you find in yourself any hint of, of any other politics, ideologies, that's not right with Jesus, you just uproot it. We're told by the Bible, make every thought of yours captive and obedient to Christ. And if you're called to testify in life's trials, like whether it's an argument with a friend, an enemy, a neighbor, a stranger, even those times, you just take it as an opportunity not to defend your ideology, but to preach the love of Christ. Because everything else, in my opinion, is going to just bounce, bounce, bounce back and forth. The same old war of words and ideas. But the love of Christ takes sin onto itself. It absorbs harm. It turns the other cheek. It's not an argument. It's preaching the love of Christ. And that, above all, is what we're called to do. And if you're suffering for anything other than this witness of Jesus Christ, you might just be wasting your time. You might just be martyring yourself for something that's not worth it. So, do I think we're in a season where we're under threat of martyrdom? No. No. We're, we're in a season of restriction, and I know people are concerned about that, so that's just my take on it. I wanted to share that. But yes, persecution can always be around... Uh, knocking at the door at any minute. Uh, but that also doesn't mean that it is either. You just got to have faith and stay vigilant. And you just got to watch. Either way, in season or out of season, we need to be humble. Remember that God appoints the season. And while he appoints the season, our mission just never changes. It's always the same. His word never changes. His word never fails. And whether we, in witnessing and preaching the love of Christ can, can control and change whether the season is in and out, you know, it doesn't matter. Our mission doesn't change, and so our witness and our preaching doesn't change. It's the love of Christ we preach, and that's what we share. So while we're in season, we want to pray and advocate for anyone whose witness is out of season. Christians who are being martyred in this world, we want to advocate for them. And... Sometimes you're going to get tested just in that. I mean, I, I, two years ago I posted on social media the, the British government's findings on Christian genocide. And every comment was just people mocking it and saying, that's not true, Christians aren't persecuted. Or if it's true, Christians deserve it because they did the crusades or all this stuff. All this stuff. And we just need to remember that... Um, None of these factors should make any difference at all whether we care or not, whether we have empathy or concern for anyone who's suffering, okay? We should care. We should have empathy. We should have concern. We, we have to have compassion in our hearts for everyone who's suffering. That's our calling. They asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? Everyone is your neighbor. That was his answer. We have to have that love and compassion for everybody, there's more than just Christian suffering in the world, but what I'm pointing out in saying this is that the evidence is there that no one is going to advocate for Christians except Christians. 
uh, Christians are fools to the world. Worldly wisdom is not going to advocate for Christians. The best way to do this work of advocacy is to drop the ideology, the politics, and preach that love of Christ. Because if you don't understand it, if you're not converted by it, you're really not going to understand it. You're not going to get it. And more than this, uh, we want to be advocating, of course, for everybody, not just Christians. For everybody. The Bible says so. It demands it. Um, and, and the Word of God demands that to do this is to drop politics, other beliefs, and prejudices, and simply preach the love of God. And it's easier said than done sometimes when everyone else's vocabulary is usually everything but a vocabulary about God and Jesus, etc. It's a different language, but that's the language we got to speak. God has prescribed for us this one single form of advocacy that's efficacious, that works, and it's preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Or as St. Francis said, preaching at all times, at every occasion, using words when necessary, right? Because love is more than words. This is what we're here to do in our faith, in our mission, in our discipleship. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have an advocate. The world has an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will reveal all truth, who gives us the power to preach when we preach, in season and out of season. He gives us the power it takes to move mountains and the power it takes to minister God's reconciliation, which the world needs desperately right now. It takes God's power to minister reconciliation. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power it takes to declare His salvation to the ends of the earth. Unless I haven't said this before enough, the power that it takes to do this is love. In season and out of season. Let God's love be your superpower in season and out of season. Rejoice at all times. Pray without ceasing in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, God who is love. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is our spirit. This is how we come at the world. Giving thanks, rejoicing, praying. That's in season and out of season. Let's pray for a minute. May the Holy Spirit and the love of God empower everyone here to be prepared in season and out of season and to be sober in all things, to endure hardship and to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill our ministry as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sean McMahon Podcast. Visit SeanSellickMcMahon.com for more information about his ministry. For more about Sean's music, please visit WorkmanSong.com.